Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 118 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. This week, we're celebrating something very special indeed. The launch of our Embitterment Heritage Collection Variety Packs. You spoke, and we heard you loud and clear. You love the Embitterment Heritage Collection, but you wanted Variety Packs for gifting and travel purposes. So, we're proud to announce that as of the airing of this episode, we got you. These Heritage Collection Variety Packs are now available exclusively from ModernBarCart.com and at fine local retailers and distillery tasting rooms across the Mid-Atlantic. Normally, these Heritage Collection Variety Packs are going to retail for $24.99, but just for you podcast listeners and just for the month of October 2019, if you enter the coupon code HERITAGE at checkout, you'll pay only $19.99, which is the cost of our Embitterment Essentials Variety Pack. That's all the exotic, funky goodness of the Heritage Collection with a $5 discount just because we love you. And if you think all we're going to do to celebrate this is throw you a sweet discount, well, buckle up because there's more. This episode, we're sharing a double feature of two episodes that came out way back in January of 2018. That's closing in on two years ago, as weird as that seems to me. That's before we had the talented Samantha Reed making sure the sound quality of this podcast is top notch. That's before we were receiving thousands of downloads and dozens of emails each month. But you know what? Even back then, the storytelling was still pretty darn good. Part one of this feature is dedicated to our Iki Japanese bitters, and it includes a really neat phone interview with Jennifer Bloser of Oregon Coast Wasabi. She is literally literally the farmer who tends these crazy plants. And we'll talk about why they're so interesting. She plucks them right out of the dirt and ships them to us on ice so that my team and I can create these super unique bitters for you. We also do a little romp through the culinary history and culture of Japan so that you can understand how this island nation and its cuisine has inspired us. Part two is focused on the cocktails and other alcoholic libations of the American frontier. Of course, our frontier sarsaparilla bitters are another really popular member of the Heritage Collection. So in addition to talking about ingredients that are native to North America, we also do a really cool march through the drinking history of our nation from its inception to roughly the year 1900. This sounds like a long time, right? It's like over a century, but when you zoom out and consider the vast sweep of drinking history, it's really a fairly condensed period when a lot of really important changes happened. And they happened here in America, which makes the cocktail a uniquely American invention. We have several featured cocktails for you along the way, so fear not, you won't be thirsty When you do have a second, please head over to Instagram and check out some shots of our new Heritage Collection variety packs. And of course, enjoy this remastered Heritage Cocktails double feature beginning in the land of Umami, the island nation of Japan. 
With fossil records of human habitation going back at least 30,000 years, the culture of Japan is an ancient one. As far back as history remembers, the relationship of the Japanese to the other people of the Asian mainland has been one of distance and scrutiny. A willingness to hear news and receive technology, but a hesitancy to open their land to foreign influence. One of the influences that did sneak through, though, is Buddhism, which continues to live happily side by side with Shinto, the ancient Japanese animistic religion. And this brings us to one of many contradictions in Japanese culture. The essentially peaceful nature of Buddhism placed squarely against a history of almost constant warfare, both between clans and with outside powers. Now, I don't want this podcast to get bogged down by all the war and intrigue. And there's a lot of it. There's the discussion about what is and what is not a samurai, the code of honor and conduct that is bushido, the highly rigid caste system that divided nobles from tradesmen from peasants. That's a lot to talk about, and it would take literally days for us to wade through it all. Japanese culture and history is super complex. That's why we're going to bypass a lot of that stuff and place our focus instead on cuisine and art, two of my favorite aspects of Japanese culture. Japan sits on the edge of several tectonic plates, and there are actually hundreds of active volcanoes in the archipelago. That volcanic soil makes for good farming, but if you know what Japan looks like, you know there's not a whole lot of room for sprawling farms like we have here in the U.S. So a lot of their cuisine comes from the ocean. And that's where sushi comes in. Just like in the cocktail world, the goal of a sushi chef is to balance the flavors in a given piece of sushi to perfectly reflect the flavor profile he or she desires. You need to take into consideration the texture and flavor of the fish, the stickiness of the rice, the salt of seaweed and soy sauce, the spice of wasabi, the juicy saline pop of the roe or fish eggs, the tang of pickled vegetables, and any number of other variables as well. It's a complicated art, rooted solidly in tradition, but also in playful experimentation and elaborate display. If you want to check out a really great documentary on sushi, definitely look up Hero Dreams of Sushi, which follows one of the top sushi chefs in Japan and unveils the magic of the craft. We'll link to that in the show notes because it's definitely one of my favorite documentaries of all time. And since we're on the subject of flavor and the Japanese cultural flavor palette, I think it's a great time to break down our Iki Japanese bitters and talk about why we zeroed in on the flavors of Japan for this project. As some of you know, there's a taste known as umami, which is a Japanese word that describes the presence of glutamate, which is a savory meat-like flavor. Officially identified by Japanese professor Kikuni Ikeda in 1908, this taste, and notice I say taste here, not flavor, is perhaps the most essential in Japanese cuisine. Here at Modern Bar Cart, we like umami, and we thought it would be pretty cool to see that taste show up more in the cocktail world. When we started developing these bitters, we wanted to be as authentic to traditional Japanese cuisine as possible, so we started out by trying to balance seaweed, dried shiitake mushrooms, ginger, and toasted sesame seeds all in one funky extract. Then we added sencha green tea, which is a type of green tea grown only in Japan. And it's a really clean, slightly bitter version of the green tea we're used to seeing from the big tea producers on the shelves here in the U.S. 
It adds a bit of vegetal astringency to the bitters, and like any good green tea, it's classy and subtle. And finally, we've got the most important ingredient in our Iki Japanese bitters, real wasabi. And to learn more about this ingredient, I'm going to shut up here for a little bit and let you enjoy a quick interview with Jennifer Bloser of Oregon Coast Wasabi, where we source that particular ingredient. Jennifer, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. So today we are sitting down with Jennifer Bloser of Oregon Coast Wasabi, and we are celebrating the launch of our Heritage Collection of Bitters here at Modern Bar Cart, and one of our flavors, the one featured in today's episode, is our Jiiki Japanese Bitters, and they feature your wasabi. Yeah, we're really excited about it. Yes, as are we. It's, uh, in fact, it's the flavor that kind of sparked the idea for the entire line, so just really glad that we were able to sit down, and I'm hoping you can introduce yourself and tell our listeners how you started growing wasabi here in the U.S. So, I am... Jennifer, I'm the CEO of Oregon Coast Wasabi and the co-owner. My husband and I, Marcus Mead, own the business. Uh, we started in 2010, and um, the farm is on the coast of Oregon, where the weather is really perfect for growing wasabi. Lots of shade, lots of fog, and lots of cool temperatures. We got involved in growing wasabi because years ago I was at an equestrian event and someone there who was also participating had some plants that he was getting rid of and asked any of us if we'd like some. So I took some of these wasabi plants and uh, just be kind of, kind of became infatuated with them. They're, it's a beautiful, very interesting plant. And we um, had some access to this property on the farm. I had a little bit of background growing up, growing some things, and we decided to see what we could do with it. And it uh, sort of has taken on a life of its own now. The farm has a lot of people who uh, make it happen. So what is wasabi precisely? I think, I think most of us understand it as that green little dollop on the edge of the sushi tray. So more and more people are understanding that or coming upon the knowledge that most of the wasabi they get at, a, at sushi restaurants is fake. So most wasabi is just horseradish and mustard and dye. And there's no labeling laws for wasabi. So you can call that fake stuff wasabi as well. Real wasabi is the plant's name is Wasabia japonica. And there are a number of different varieties of it. It's a member of the same family that of, of broccoli and cauliflower. It's a cruciferous vegetable. And the part of the wasabi that you grate into what looks like the green blob of fake paste that you get is actually the stalk of the wasabi. In the wasabi world, it's often called the rhizome or the root, but um, that's actually a misnomer. So if you imagine a broccoli stalk, that's what that's the part of the plant that you actually grate up into a nice bright green, usually paste, depending on the variety. Okay, that's really interesting. So, big takeaway is that what most people think of as wasabi is actually not wasabi. Does it differ at all in flavor uh, when you're comparing real wasabi from the stuff that you get on the sushi tray? It does, actually. It still gives you that nice sort of punch-in-the-nose um, spice that is immediate and then goes away. And I can talk about that in just a minute. 
But the flavor profile for real wasabi is actually much broader. It's a little bit sweet. It has some floral notes to it. It's not flat. And some people tell us that the after tasting the real wasabi, the um, fake wasabi tastes really flat and almost chemical, probably because of being dehydrated and that. So it's much. It's just a much more um, round, full taste, much more components to it in addition to the spice that people think of that goes right up into your sinuses and then disappears. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I definitely find that myself when we, when we started playing around with the real wasabi in an attempt to be as authentic as possible to the cuisine and flavor palette of Japan, the first thing I noticed was just how um, kind of vibrant and complex the flavor profile was. And you know, it's, I, I'd certainly say it's not as spicy. I mean, I, perhaps there are ways to make it as spicy, but at least when it comes out in our product, you get a lot more of the kind of celery characteristics of the stock because when, when we produce our bitters, we use not only the, uh, the stock or the, what people call the rhizome, but we also use the, the leaves, uh, that you provide mm-hmm. us. And those just have this really nice kind of celery, peppery, flavor in addition to the really interesting um, kind of spice and floral components of, of the stem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The leaves are really fun, actually, to play with, and it makes me happy that you guys use those um, because a lot of people aren't familiar with the leaves. They're not imported into the U.S. from Japan, and and as most people are aware, there are very few wasabi farmers in Japan, or excuse me, wasabi farms in the U.S. And so the leaves don't show up in markets very often. And you can do a whole bunch of things with the leaves. And they're actually really delicious. What are some of your favorite things to do with the leaves? One of the things I like to do, and actually I think you guys have done with your bitters, is, is when you juice the leaves and the leaf stalks, you get this really beautiful bright green extremely spicy juice that you can use as a base for salad dressings or marinades. We've used it as a base for sorbet mixed with uh, coconut and lime and you can freeze it. It's actually pretty stable so you can actually freeze it and keep it a long time. Uh, So sometimes I like to juice up the leaves and then use the juice. We'd also like to eat them raw. So just chopped up the leaves and the the leaf stalks, which um, your description is great because the stalks, we talk to we talk to people about the stalks in terms of spicy celery because they're crunchy and they have that nice spice to them. So chopping them up and eating them raw in salads, and also anything you do with kale, we do with the wasabi greens. Um, you, and you can saute them, you can steam them, you can put them in soups. And one of the really cool things about these plants is that they produce the leaves year round, so it's a perennial a lot like kale. And we actually also provide people with um, plant starts so they can actually grow the greens in their in their own backyards and in their gardens at home and have wasabi greens whenever they want them. So it's a fun little plant to have around in your house. For sure. So people can just literally go to your website and purchase those plant starts from you? Yes, they can. Yep. And we send them, we have, we ship them all over the country and obviously people buy them for themselves. They also buy them as gifts. We get photos. We love to get photos of people and their plants. People show us the leaves they've grown. They show us photos of the rhizomes or the stalks that they've harvested. We had one woman send us some really beautiful, fun photos of her very large, like 12 or 15 pound rabbit that liked to jump in their 
plant their pot and eat all the wasabi greens. Um, so we have a lot of fun with the plants. That's great. Uh, so obviously, based on what we've discussed so far, we know it's a really cool kind of different flavor profile that's not super available, at least currently here in the U.S., um, but that it has a super important role in the cuisine of Japan. So can you talk about maybe what role it plays in uh, the, the role that wasabi plays in Japanese cuisine and perhaps the prevalence of it being farmed over in Japan? Sure. My understanding is that one of the original driving factors to the use of wasabi uh, with sushi in the Japanese culture is because of its uh, significant antibacterial properties. So wasabi has been used for thousands of years as sort of a, a nutraceutical supplement, let's say. And it has, in addition to antibacterial, it has anti-inflammatory properties. It has um, anti-cancer properties. So that was one of the reasons why the Japanese started to use it, because it was a great thing to pair with raw fish. It also has been used to treat parasites. So if there's any parasites in your piece of raw fish that you're eating and you're also eating wasabi with it, the odds of you getting sick go way down. Most people know about the use of wasabi with sushi, and the traditional use with sushi is that the sushi chef decides how much to put on. So you don't necessarily usually get a blob of it on your plate. The chef decides for each piece what the perfect amount of wasabi is, and then when you're presented with the piece, it's already there. The Japanese also love to eat wasabi with steak, and my husband and I have decided that that is one of the most delicious ways to eat wasabi. So kind of like you would think of as hor in, in our culture, in the U.S. culture of serving horseradish with steak, wasabi with steak and a little bit of soy sauce is one of the most delicious things ever. Oh, that sounds really, really lovely. It's amazing. They also do a lot of pickling with the leaves and stems which is actually a really simple thing to do. You can do a very simple, quick salt and sugar pickle with the leaves and the stems that will take less than half an hour. And then you have a pickled product to serve with your meal. And then anyone who's, who's been to Japan has probably seen there's this myriad of wasabi food items that you can get now. You can get wasabi soda. You can get soft serve ice cream. You can get Kit Kat bars, puddings. I mean, there's all, there's all, all types of things that you can get. But the most traditional uses are still the, the pickled leaves and stems, um, as well as, you know, traditionally with sushi and then also though with steak. Really, really cool. One of the things I like to do when we talk about, you know, a uh, specific culture or geography is kind of like, you know, you present us with a fact, right? That the Japanese eat wasabi with their seafood and they happen to eat a lot of seafood because if you think about it, like Japan is just a bunch of rocks. There's not a whole bunch of fertile you know, loamy farmland there. And so a lot of the, you know, logically, a lot of the cuisine there is going to be sourced from the sea, which is something that they have a lot more access to relative to their, the size of their country than other places would have as their culture evolves. So it makes complete sense that these people who, you know, are basically tied to the sea are going to be using this plant as you know, a way to make sure that that is a sustainable source of food for them. And they're not getting sick. That's, that's a really cool connection to me. Yeah, I thought so too. And, um, there, there has now actually been some medical trials in the U S where they've looked at the efficacy of it for 
for different cancers, for flus and cold viruses. So I think that um, we know more, much more about the culinary use of wasabi. But what drove that original culinary use is, are you know, is, are the health aspects of it. And I think that's actually something that we're very interested in. And there's a lot more information coming out about that. That's great. In the same way, cocktail bitters are also you know, kind of tied to that medicinal tradition. So it kind of makes sense for us. I didn't even know coming into this interview that, that wasabi had such a uh, strong tie to, as you said, nutraceuticals. Um, so it kind of makes sense that we're marrying these, you know, bitters and wasabi in, in one product. And uh, even though we're not doctors here and uh, none of this is medical advice, um, you know, there's something to be said for looking at an entire history of a culture and seeing that these people have been using it in that way for thousands, hundreds, thousands of years. Correct. Yes. And we are not doctors either. So I'm not, I'm not telling people to go out and get wasabi and use it for anything specific. Um, We did have, um, we did have very, one very, very funny uh, use for it this year because apparently an article came out about the efficacy of wasabi in growing hair. So we did have people buying it and grinding it up and putting it on their heads. And but, are, were there any uh, <laughs> before and after photos? No, I, I really desperately wanted some. I haven't received any before and after, but I was really clear with everyone. I don't, I'm not sure this is something you should do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, does it burn? I mean, if you, if you put it on your skin, is it going to burn? No, uh, it doesn't actually. If it only burns if you get it in a mucous membrane. So, like if you get it in your eyes, you know, obviously in your nose, in your mouth. But the the heat molecules in wasabi are water based, as opposed to a chili, which is oil based. Which is why when you eat wasabi, you get that rush and then it goes away. It doesn't linger. Interesting. Okay, so that's um, you know, as as somebody who makes bitters, it's 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 important to me, you know what types of molecules, you know, even though I don't have a science background, it's important to think about what types of molecules that I'm working with, because in the instance of, for example, our orange bitters, you know, we're trying to extract an oil, whereas with the wasabi, you know, you're saying that the kind of the spice is a water, water-based molecule. Um, Correct. And, and that makes a difference in our process. And so, you know, that's why juicing those leaves and, um, you know, doing it that way is really effective for us to get that, you know, get that nice, um, you know, well-rounded flavor spectrum of both the roots and and the stem for us. So that's all really interesting information. And I think, you know, listeners at this point are kind of, you know, starting to get some ideas. Hopefully some of them are going to visit your site, check out some plant starts, uh, just in general, learn more about wasabi. But I'm wondering also if you have any insight that you can share about Japan. Um, have, have you had any contact with Japanese people in your exploration of wasabi, or do you know anything about their culture that you'd like to share with the listeners on this podcast? We have had some interactions, and we actually have sought out some Japanese folks who have experience with wasabi in Japan, so that we could so that we could basically see what the quality of our wasabi is relative to Japan and some Japanese chefs. And so the feedback that we've gotten is that the quality of what we produce is as high as what comes out of Japan, which has been great, obviously, for us. Um, and then what I would say to the listeners is that 
traditionally, wasabi is grown in stream beds in Japan, and they're terraced and underneath the tree canopy. If you have a chance to grow to go to a, a wasabi farm in Japan, take it. And um, if you don't, go on YouTube and just take a look at some Japanese wasabi farms because they're really they're all built by hand and they're really quite lovely. Really, that's that's interesting. So, it's a sh- is it a shade loving plant? Yes, wasabi is a full shade plant. Actually, we grow the plant in greenhouses, and our greenhouses are covered about nine months out of the year, even on the Oregon coast with all the fog that we get out there. So, when people buy the plant starts, we tell them the primary need, the primary requirement for wasabi plants is full shade. It, they don't, they really dislike direct sun. That is good to know. And so, in, in theory. This, have you had any experience with folks growing it as an indoor plant in an yes. apartment with like, you know, a suboptimal light? Yes, actually. We have quite a few folks in the Midwest and in the Northeast where it gets really cold in the winter and they grow their plants inside. And if you keep it in a corner just away from um, direct light from windows, the plants are just happy, happy as can be. Very good. Good to know. So moving back to Japan. Maybe you're in the Portland area, correct? Or Portlandish? Correct. So mm-hmm. I, I know that Portland is a, is a big uh, cocktail hub. So uh, kind of a two-pronged question here. One, is there anybody in your area that you've come across who's who makes cocktails in a Japanese fashion or using Japanese ingredients? Or has anybody used your wasabi as a cocktail ingredient before? Yes. Um, so I'm not... Yes to the second question. I'm not sure about the first question. I mean, there certainly are some really great sushi restaurants um, in Portland who also create their own cocktails. Now, whether or not those are traditional Japanese-style cocktails, I couldn't necessarily say. But we have had a few folks use our wasabi in cocktails. Zilla Sake is one of the restaurants, and they created a really delicious um, martini with the wasabi, which is kind of a, if you go online and look up wasabi drinks, the martinis are one thing that come up. We also have had some folks, um, so there's been some infused vodka with our wasabi. Also, a couple different beers and a cider, actually, an apple wasabi cider. So some of those, um, I think the cider as well was was used in a cocktail. And unfortunately, I should have those ingredients in mind. I don't have them specifically in mind. The thing that I think people have used our wasabi in the most it, are um, Bloody Marys. Okay. It makes an amazing addition to Bloody Marys. Yes, it, it seems to be. Okay, so this is good. We're, we're kind of building a list for our listeners here. Um, because in, in the uh, podcast, you know, we, we, you know, we like to get into the kind of nerdy history, the nerdy chemistry, the nerdy food science. But, you know, at the end of the day, we want people to be able to go out and make some drinks with this. And I, in this episode, I'll be, I'll be featuring a few of them. So it's good to also have these as additions. And before we jump off here, I just wanted to give you the chance to tell folks who are listening to the Modern Bar Cart podcast, how they can connect with you on social, via the web, um, or perhaps via email if they have any questions for you. Sure. Thanks. So our website is the Wasabi Store. So the wasabistore.com. People can find us on um, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Oregon Coast Wasabi. 
and they can email me at jennifer at oregoncoastwasabi.com. And that comes obviously directly to me. Perfect. All right, Jennifer, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Eric. It's We are so excited about what you guys do. Thanks so much. Cheers. As you can see, wasabi is a really fascinating and authentic Japanese ingredient, and we're really thrilled that we're able to partner with a company dedicated to that craft here in the U.S. But there's still some questions left on the table that we need to answer for this episode, like, why haven't we had a cocktail yet? And what the heck does iki mean? A couple featured cocktails that really accentuate the iki Japanese bitters by embitterment are... A riff on the Martinez, which features gin, and also a very refined Manhattan kind of Rob Roy spinoff using Japanese whiskey. First, we'll take a look at this Iki Martinez, which uses two ounces of gin, a half ounce of sweet vermouth, I used Carpano Antica, a quarter ounce of maraschino liqueur, and one dropper of Iki Japanese bitters. This is a stirred drink, so after you chill these ingredients in your mixing pint, stir them and strain them into a nice stemmed cocktail glass and garnish, if you like, with a lemon twist. The tiny amount of maraschino liqueur in this cocktail gives a bit of lushness that acts as a perfect counterpoint to the green, spicy, umami flair of the Iki Japanese bitters. It's lovely to sip on slowly, and the flavor profile definitely evolves as the cocktail warms up. Next, we've got our whiskey cocktail, which I'm calling the Edo Project in honor of Tokyo's traditional name. And I'm quickly going to hit on a few important facts about Japanese whiskey, which resembles Scotch whiskey more closely than it does American bourbon or rye. First, it's spelled with no E in the word whiskey. And there's a good little mnemonic that I use to help me remember how to spell a given whiskey from around the world. And here it is. If the country it comes from has an E in the name, then there's an E in the word. This is true of the United States as well as Ireland. However, if there's no E, as in Scotland or Japan, you omit the E from the word whiskey. Pretty simple. Japanese whiskey is made with malted and sometimes peated barley, and then aged in most cases in American bourbon casks. However, The climate in Japan varies more widely than that of Scotland, so the aging conditions result in a product with a slightly different set of characteristics. And hopefully, very soon, we'll be able to put together an episode just on Japanese whiskey so we can delve into that more closely. But what about that cocktail? To make the Edo project, you'll need two ounces of Japanese whiskey, a half ounce of dry vermouth, I used Vaya, V-Y-A, from California, and one dropper full of Iki Japanese bitters. This is somewhere between a dry Manhattan and a Rob Roy, with a really funky twist added by the Japanese bitters. And like the Iki Martinez, all you gotta do is stir this until it's well chilled and then strain it into your cocktail glass. You'll notice that both of these cocktails are fairly simple, and if there's an extravagance to them, it's in the quality or nature of the ingredients, not the complexity of how they're combined. This brings us to the final aspect of Japanese culture we'll consider in this episode, their unique cultural aesthetic. If I had to characterize Japanese aesthetics, I'd say it's a seemingly contradictory blend of extreme simplicity and highly stylized attention to detail. 
This is also tinged by a reverence for imperfection, out of which are born several important aesthetic principles. One is wabi-sabi, and I'll just let Wikipedia take it away on this one. According to Wikipedia, wabi originally referred to the loneliness of living in nature remote from society. Sabi meant chill, lean, or withered. Around the 14th century, these meanings began to change, taking on more positive connotations. Wabi now connotes rustic simplicity, freshness or quietness, or understated elegance. can also refer to quirks and anomalies arising from the process of construction, which adds uniqueness and elegance to the object. Sabi is beauty or serenity that comes with age, when the life of the object and its impermanence are evidenced in its patina and wear or in any visible repairs. And another term that wabi-sabi gives rise to is kintsugi, which is the artistic repair of cracked pottery using gold or metallic lacquer to accentuate the cracks and imperfections rather than hiding them. See, the Japanese believe that the life of an object gives it a certain power or value. And so drinking tea, for example, from a carefully repaired cup that was once broken is preferable to using a brand new cup right off the line from the factory. Another thing that strikes me about the Japanese aesthetic is that it's so grounded in the natural world. Most of us come across this aspect in haiku, the popular and brief poems arranged in three lines of five, seven, and five syllables. Usually these poems have some reference to nature as well as a nod to the fleetingness of life. And we're pretty familiar with these. We've come across them usually in our high school or college poetry classes. And, um, you know, they're, they're a fun little exercise that we can do to kind of understand Japanese aesthetics at least a little bit. But one fact I bet you didn't know is that whereas we here in North America have four seasons, the Japanese have 72 separate micro-seasons, each with its own set of associated natural phenomena. In late March, for example, sparrows start to nest is followed by first cherry blossoms and then by distant thunder. In early October, wild geese return is followed by chrysanthemums bloom and then by crickets chirp around the door. These really precise views of nature and the changing of the seasons are, to me, a perfect example of that Japanese precision, but it's a precision that's always in touch with constant change. I'll end this episode by explaining why we chose the Japanese concept of iki as the name for our bitters. And iki is both an aesthetic word and a way of life. It's a type of style that's unique to the people of Japan because it pits their own unique aesthetic values against certain universal truths of the human experience, namely that life is hard, and if you get attached to something or someone, you're probably going to experience loss. That whole attachment idea is a direct borrowing from Buddhist philosophy. In 1930, a Japanese scholar named Kuki Shuzo published a text called The Structure of Iki, or the structure of detachment, and I'm going to read a couple quick notes from that here. In the introduction to the work, the translator discusses a set of values and actions that became typical in Edo, Japan in the late 1700s. Quote, 
A man or woman in pursuit of iki would employ a certain cool, elegant, and flirtatious demeanor, backed by pluck, to win over the object of desire. This spiritual tenet became sublimated in the psyche of the common people of Edo, and by the beginning of the 18th century, the townspeople there identified themselves very closely with iki and strove to cultivate and embody this spirit. Iki became such a rarefied, creed-like code of behavior that it was said to be detectable in every facet of life, including patterns of speech, choices in food, furniture, and other household items, not to mention courting behavior and clothing colors and patterns. End quote. Here you can see how passion and detachment are linked. Hot and cold, there's those contradictions again. Iki knows when to follow the rules and when to break them how to flirt, and how to move on quickly. It acknowledges the pain and passion of attachment, but it's on to the next adventure before love can blossom or loss can hurt. Iki translates not only to personal actions and passions of the blood, but also to aesthetics. Kuki Shuzo, the author of The Structure of Detachment, says, quote, in sum, we can say that colors expressive of Iki offer inactive afterimages that accompany a luscious experience. Iki lives in the future, holding the past in its arms. A coolly discerning knowledge based on personal or social experience rules Iki, whose existence depends on maintaining possibility as a possibility. The soul that has tasted the last drop of sizzling excitement of warm colors draws on the quietude in cool colors that offer complementary afterimages. Iki embodies in its sensuality the gray of color blindness. It allows for being tinged by another color without being muddled by it. Iki shelters a dark negation concealed within its sensual affirmation. End quote. He also says that, quote, taste begins with tasting, with lived experience. And it's this combination of effortless style and human imperfection that drew us to the concept of Iki in the first place. That's all for today's episode, but until next time, we hope you'll check out our Iki Japanese bitters to get a taste of Japan and maybe even make some effortlessly stylish cocktails of your own. That was our delightful trip through Japanese cuisine and culture. And to keep this double feature right on a rolling, let's turn our attention to the robust pioneering libations of the North American frontier. Enjoy. Today, instead of jet setting off to a strange land, we're going to keep things a little closer to home, but only in a manner of speaking. Our subject is the cocktails and cocktail culture of the American frontier, and that is going to take us, by definition, to a few places that are a little wild, places where you got to let the horse pick its own path because there are no roads. But to quote a professor I once had, where we're going, we don't need roads. Before we jump into the history, the science, and the straight-up weirdness of Frontier Cocktails, I thought I'd take a minute here to introduce you to this episode's guest of honor, our Frontier Sarsaparilla Bitters. When my team and I sat down to develop the Heritage Collection, we realized that a lot of our ingredients came from warm, tropical locations, and 
I mean, that didn't really pose a problem because there's plenty of different cultures and flavors that developed in the tropics, lots of material. But what it did reveal is that we've probably been overlooking a lot of native flavors from our own continent. North America is pretty special in that it boasts terrains and temperate zones that cover almost the entire range of ecological systems found elsewhere in the world. So it stood to reason that we should be able to create a flavor palette that is uniquely North American. Turns out that wasn't as easy as it seemed for a couple different reasons. One, we don't like dealing with seasonal products here. That's just a logistical reality. If you, as a consumer, want a consistent handcrafted, and in many cases, certified USDA organic product year-round, then I, as the manufacturer, can't really risk getting a phone call from my produce distributor saying that, hey, by the way, apple season is over, or a strange Asian fungus wiped out every strawberry known to man. North America is rich in these seasonal fruits and vegetable products, but that didn't do us a whole lot of good as we sat out on our flavor quest. Another limiting factor was that because we are a nation of immigrants here in the United States, our national cuisine is based on flavors that were imported to our country, just like the spices and herbs that define them. So after a lot of time spent eliminating flavor candidates from our list, as well as pouring through Native American recipe books and botanical indexes, we finally arrived at our native North American brew. Frontier sarsaparilla bitters balance the pungent, mentholated, terpene-driven flavor of woodsy ingredients like juniper berries, lemon balm, and hyssop with a deep, woody backbone of birch bark and Mexican sarsaparilla root and just a little bit of sweetness on the finish. And that sweetness comes from blueberries, which have a close analog in the European bilberry, but are in fact a truly North American native plant. But you may think, aren't blueberries super seasonal? You know, that thing you were just complaining about? Well, my friends, summoning up a little frontier ingenuity of our own, we found a way around the problem of seasonality. We used dried blueberries. When I talk about the flavor profiles of the Heritage Collection, you'll hear me speak a lot about tension, several different flavors pulling in different directions. And in the case of the Frontier Bitters, those basic flavor groups are sweet and fruity in the case of the blueberries, woody and mellow in the case of the birch bark and sarsaparilla root, and kind of grassy and mentholated in the case of our herbal components and juniper berries. And this is just a little reminder to keep that concept of tension between flavors front of mind as you create your own innovative flavors behind the bar. So now that you know all about the flavor profile of our Frontier Sarsaparilla Bitters, you may be wondering which cocktail is the best staging ground for your first experiment with this amazing woodsy concoction. And in truth, the answer is simple, the Frontier Old Fashioned. This cocktail is, as you would suspect, a simple old fashioned, made by swapping out our Frontier Sarsaparilla bitters for whatever aromatic bitters you'd otherwise be using in the drink. And as I've said before, I think simple cocktails are often the best place to test out new bitters or other cocktail ingredients like liqueurs and vermouths because you get the chance to experience the new flavor without a whole lot of noisy competition. But one thing I would encourage you to potentially modify when you make your Frontier Old Fashioned is the type of sugar you use. One thing we know about the staples available to folks in the frontier is that it wasn't all extremely fancy. 
was usually the rougher stock that could handle changes in temperature and humidity as it traversed the mountains and the desert, maybe a little rainfall on the back of a mule. So pure, refined table sugar wasn't really encountered all that much on the frontier. Instead, consider using a darker, less refined sugar cube, something like sugar in the raw, Florida crystals, or even brown sugar might do you just fine. Also, for the sake of conversion here, just keep in mind that a half tablespoon of loose sugar is going to roughly approximate the size of the sugar cube you normally use in your old fashioned. Finally, if you want to go above and beyond, you might consider making a molasses syrup by boiling two cups of sugar, one cup of water, and two tablespoons of molasses. Unlike sugar, molasses was significantly easier to store and transport on the frontier, and so it was used as one of the most common sweetening agents from the time our country was a scrappy collection of colonies right up to the 20th century. So if you're looking for frontier authenticity, that's what you go for. We'll put a link to that molasses syrup recipe from Imbibe Magazine right in the show notes, and... Once again, returning to that issue of conversion, I really wouldn't use more than a quarter ounce liquid measure of this molasses syrup in your old fashioned, being that it's a rich simple ratio. Instead of a one to one, it's a two to one sugar to water ratio. And also because that molasses is definitely gonna assert itself in a big way. So you've got yourself your drink now. You're enjoying your first experience with our frontier sarsaparilla bitters. Why not let me at this point, regale you with some thrilling, inspiring, and often just plain bizarre facts and anecdotes about the cocktails and cocktail culture of the American frontier. Sounds kind of nice, right? Now, when it comes to telling a story, I'm a really logical guy, and I don't like people on the internet poking holes in my content. So first, I want to set a couple definitions about what the North American frontier is and whose cocktails and cocktail culture we're talking about in this episode. Starting with that first question, the what of the frontier, and to a large extent the who, depends entirely on the when. That's what makes this episode a bit of a trip through time. Getting into the etymology of the word frontier, we fall down a pretty fun little temporal rabbit hole. Frontier, derived from the French fronte, derived from the Latin France, derived from the Proto-Indo-European bron and bren both of which indicate an edge or projection like a sword or the prow of a ship. So throughout history, the idea of the frontier is literally something that sticks out or borders a foreign substance, what we today in the startup world refer to alternatively as the cutting edge or the bleeding edge, depending on where you stand. Anatomically speaking, the Latin word frons also refers to the forehead or brow, which juts out into the world as an expression of your feelings. That's the part of the skull that houses the frontal lobe, and even though in Roman times folks thought that emotions were housed in the liver, clearly there was some connection lying just below the surface. And strangely, these old Norse and Latin word origins gel pretty well with how we think of our own frontier heritage. The frontier is edgy, bloody, and the heroes who survived best found ways to harden themselves against danger. In another respect, The frontier is exciting, thrilling, possessing the capability both for great opportunity, the chance to, for example, manifest your own destiny, and also unspeakable horrors. Here we're talking about painted savages and grizzly bears. These optimistic dreams and nightmares are all brought to you by the frontal lobe. 
We know that the frontier is the edge of what the majority of people would call the civilized world, and that it was a place of both great danger and great opportunity. In the 16 and 1700s, the American frontier was kind of this understood line drawn from north to south down the western border of the Appalachian Mountains. And this was largely fine. The foothills, coastal plains, fast-flowing rivers, and deep-water ports to the east of the frontier were just perfect for setting up urban hubs from which these colonies and later states could govern themselves. So for a while, a couple hundred years in fact, the frontier wasn't on the minds of most common people who were setting up their farms and businesses in the New World. But that doesn't mean that the guys and they were all guys, in high offices weren't daydreaming about all that awesome lumber and farmland and gold that could be lying just on the other side of those fairly unintimidating mountains. So, despite the normal person being largely content east of the Appalachians for the first couple hundred years of our nation's history, there were still plenty of folks who were absorbed in extending the frontier, in pushing that blade further into the tender, unexploited meat of the continent, and it is largely the commercial, political, and military concerns of these groups and individuals that are responsible for creating the expansive North American frontier that we think of today. Now, we're going to pause here for a moment while we're still largely east of the Mississippi and just briefly mention that other question I raised a few tangents ago, the question of whose cocktails and cocktail culture we're talking about in this episode. The answer is, when it comes to drinking in those early days of our nation, there were two types of folks, rich and poor. And that's a distinction I'm going to use fairly often when I talk about certain cocktails and cocktail ingredients in this episode because it really helps you understand who had access to what and subsequently what purpose these various alcoholic beverages served. Starting in the very early days, those simple times when the Appalachians were the bleeding edge of the frontier, what were the rich folks imbibing and what did the poor folks scrape by with? Well, you have to remember that in the 16 and 1700s, cocktails weren't a thing yet. If you listened to our last episode, you'll recall that this is the high age of punch, that wonderful five-ingredient elixir born in India that migrated its way across the world aboard British freight ships. And for the colonists, England is where all things fashionable and popular came from. So if you were part of the landed gentry in the New World, it was sort of your job to take whatever the latest fad was in England and make it part of your next party in Philadelphia or Boston or Baltimore. So what happened is in country taverns and wealthy estates alike, punch was the popular thing to drink in the 16 and 1700s for anyone who had some money to spare. If you didn't have all that much jingle in your pocket, you were likely to partake in something more along the lines of weak beer, country cider, or, if you were lucky, a nice whiskey. I say whiskey because this was produced in the more rural areas that grew and harvested the base grains you would need to make such a spirit, like corn, rye, wheat, and barley. Rum and brandy were also popular in the colonies, but... At least early on, you'd really only come across these spirits in wealthier settings, and often in the punch bowl. There was one really heavy hitter in the whiskey world that reigned supreme as our nation's frontier began to edge westward in those years following the revolution. That was Old Monongahela Rye Whiskey. 
This stuff was produced in the watershed of the Monongahela River, spanning south-central Pennsylvania, western Maryland, and northeastern West Virginia, and it was a staple renowned for both its quality and its drinkability. Monongahela rye was one of the first distinctly American spirits, and you can read about some of the production and aging attributes that makes it special in the show notes page where we link to a few resources. But the most important thing to note here is that as eyes were turning toward the frontier, rural Americans were beginning to form their own cultural identity, and they took great pride in the spirits they distilled. Now, let's fast forward a bit. So far, we've been hovering right around the time of the American Revolution, small country, relatively distinct and stable frontier, although I'm sure there's some disgruntled historians out there who would disagree, but nonetheless. Quick jump through our timeline here. In the year 1800, we've got the Louisiana Purchase, which more than doubles the entire landmass of the United States, and all for the bargain price of $15 million. Then, 1805, Lewis and Clark Expedition, that famous journey to locate the Northwest Passage, or the water route to the Pacific Ocean, didn't pan out for them. In the 1810s and 20s, we've got the Missouri Compromise that sets kind of the rules and lays out a path to statehood in certain territories of the country in that new Louisiana purchase, as well as some treaties with Britain and Russia to establish the northernmost boundaries of our nation, our current day border with Canada. In the 1830s, we've got the Texas Revolution breaking that future state away from the rule of Mexico. And then, 10 years after that, we've got President James K. Polk, who extends the landmass of the nation yet again by initiating the Mexican-American War, which ended in the Mexican Cession and the Gadsden Purchase, gave us California and the entire American Southwest. So, in the period of about 40 years, we go from a country with a pretty straightforward little life tucked between the Appalachians and the Atlantic, with a relatively stable frontier, to a country that's so big and so wide open that it's literally bursting with both danger and opportunity. You got a gun plenty? Or with a This is the American frontier we think of in our imagination, filled with mountain men and hostile Native Americans, amber waves of grain, and dramatic mesa-studded sunsets. This is the myth of the American West. This is what sold dime store cowboy novels and created the characters that made John Wayne and Clint Eastwood famous. This is when brave Americans in the East gazed westward with both hope and trepidation loaded up their wagons, tightened their belts, and started walking. And they brought their liquor with them. I think this is a nice time to talk about another excellent cocktail we've developed specifically for our Frontier Sarsaparilla Bitters. We call it the Fur Trapper's Daughter, and it's made with a fusion of French and American ingredients, which makes sense because before the time of the Louisiana Purchase, French fur trappers were some of the first folks who ventured beyond the Mississippi and into the Rockies and beyond. Lewis and Clark even employed such a Frenchman named Charbonneau to help guide them on their journey. To make this drink, you're going to need one and a half ounces of cognac or brandy, 
three quarters of an ounce of apple whiskey. Here you can use Applejack or Calvados. A quarter ounce of orange liqueur. Cointreau or Grand Marnier work nicely. And several dashes of our Frontier Sarsaparilla bitters. You've got a lot of flexibility in this drink, which is great. You can kind of pick your adventure with an American Applejack or a French Calvados. And you can even pick your price point with an aged or unaged orange liqueur. So any way you spin it, you can't really go wrong. All you got to do is add these ingredients to a mixing glass with ice, stir it well, and then strain into a coupe glass. And for a garnish, I think a ribbon of apple peel could work really nicely. Or if you want to go for a brighter option, use a lemon twist, which is going to complement and kind of accentuate the dark velvety sweetness of the brandy. So now that you've got drink number two in hand, we've arrived at a place where the American frontier really comes into its own. After a brief and bloody interruption by the American Civil War, the railroad starts opening up the frontier to more and speedier settlement, and the telegraph begins to connect these individuals and their exploits with business interests and news-hungry audiences in the East. Remember when I talked about those wealthy Americans in the 1700s waiting for news of the latest fashions from London? Well, the same thing was kind of happening here, except it happened faster. And more of those wealthy folks from the East could just kind of hop on a train and arrive at the quote-unquote frontier after just a few days. It was these improvements in access and communication that spurred a whole ton of economic and technological development, all of which paved the way for the rise of the cocktail. Over time, a few places became very important metropolitan centers in the West. San Francisco, of course, which exploded after the gold rush that began in 1849. Then there was Salt Lake City, Denver, Dodge City, Kansas City, a whole bunch of others in Texas and the Deep Southwest as well. And these places were where the wealthy transplants from back East, the new money from frontier entrepreneurs, and the everyday ranch hands and cowpokes would mingle, share news, have a drink or five, and yes, occasionally bathe. Which brings us to our question again, what were the rich folks imbibing and what were the poor folks willing? This was the time when saloons came into full swing, some as standalone establishments and some housed in the fancier hotels where people of means were lodged. In response to the question of what types of drinks were commonly consumed in the Old West saloons, Frontier Fair columnist Sherry Monahan says, quote, While it's true that wine, beer, and whiskey were largely consumed in most Western saloons, many also offered fancy mixed drinks. They were quite popular in the wealthier communities like San Francisco, Denver, and Dodge City, where bars served drinks such as the gin sling, mint julep, and whiskey punch. And... Arizona state historian Marshall Trimble adds, depending on the location and year, a shot of whiskey usually cost around a quarter, beer was around 10 cents a glass, and the mixed drinks went up from that price. From what I can gather online, personally, skilled craftsmen were often paid somewhere around two bucks a day, and we can assume that other trades kind of spread out from there, some getting paid a little bit more, many getting paid quite a bit less. The bottom line is this. If you weren't a business owner or a wealthy carpetbagger from back east, chances are you were on the lookout for affordable booze wherever you can find it and pretty much whatever it tasted like. So 
For a little inspiration about just what this stuff was and what it was called, I visited the Old West Glossary of Strong Drink online to see what cowpokes were calling their hooch, and I was not disappointed. This is a really funny little resource. Uh, It's really just a blog post from 2013, and I'll link to it in the show notes, but it's just got this whole massive list of really funny, kind of quirky American words, and a lot of them especially in the strong drink section, refer to whiskey. So some of the colorful names for the absolute roughest whiskey and illegally fortified or distilled spirits include Bluestone, Bug Juice, Forty Rod, Fusel Oil, Nose Paint, Red Eye, Stagger Juice, Tanglefoot, Toper, and Valley Tan, just to name a few. And you really can't help but lapse into that accent there. It's just, some of those phrases are just delicious. And there are actually a couple items on this list where you can kind of identify the cost-saving aspect for these thirsty lower-class frontiersmen. One is the quote-unquote fusel oil that I mentioned above, which kind of served as a rotating tap as a manner of speaking, but really it was just any fermented beverage that either a saloon owner or maybe somebody uh, who had a wagon would offer straight from the barrel for an affordable price. It was basically the PBR tall boy of the West. And the beauty of fusel oil is that you could use whatever was in season. In the winter, it was probably closer to beer made using grain or starchy roots. And in the summer, you could use anything from apples to grapes to cactus fruit, depending on what nature or your local farmer had to offer. So fusel oil was great and often very cheap. And another slightly less honorable practice that was often used by saloon owners was cutting or fortifying these spirits with all manner of other ingredients to make the barrel or the bottle last a little longer and perhaps keep their prices lower than the saloon on the other side of town. You'll see this practice come back about 80 years later during Prohibition, when booze was also pretty hard to come by. But enough about these crusty gauchos and penniless drifters. What if you were a well-to-do lady or gentleman who just arrived on the latest train from Chicago? Perhaps you might be more enticed by a so-called fancy mixed drink that you'd need to specify by name to avoid some of the questionable concoctions that some of these saloons were obviously serving. And chances are there'd be some sort of palatable option for you. There are a whole swarm of drinks that became popular around this time that were all kind of orbiting and being pulled in the direction of the cocktail, including... The Sangaree, which was basically any beer, wine, or spirit cut with water, sweetened with sugar, and then topped with spice like nutmeg. Kind of like a lazy punch. Then there was the Sling, which included two ounces of a spirit, one teaspoon of sugar, one ounce of water, and a small lump of ice. And of course, as the 19th century drew on, there were the popular juleps and smashes, which included shaved ice, fruit, herbs, and garnishes, and in some cases, multiple liquors. Another benefit of more transportation and improved technology was carbonation. And this is where you see sodas made from citrus and various other flavoring agents, including, lo and behold, sarsaparilla, becoming popular mixers, especially for lighter drinks in warmer climates. As you can see, this is the setting in which punches, 
toddies, slings, and tonics that had followed settlers across the frontier from back east became transformed into the cocktails that characterized the golden age of pre-prohibition drinking toward the end of the 1800s. And there was one big commodity that spurred this advance. Ice. Think about it. If you're a saloon owner in a boomtown like the one we see in the popular HBO series Deadwood, are you really concerned with ice? No. You're going to get the miners, cattle hands, various foreigners, and ladies of loose character all liquored up as quickly and as efficiently as possible so you can part them with more of their money. And that meant whiskey shots and beer, which have minimal storage and refrigeration considerations. Chances are you, as a saloon owner, haven't been around long enough or don't plan to stay around long enough once the railroad moves on to worry about building an insulated ice house, then waiting for winter, if you're someplace cool enough for that to happen, cutting ice on a lake, lugging it to the ice house, and dealing with all the labor and upkeep that would basically amount to a whole other business in and of itself, and one that would fail immediately if the demand wasn't there. So, it's no wonder that Frontier Slings and Toddies, both precursors to the cocktail, were served either room temperature or hot, just like punch. But, in the 1850s, in the midst of the California Gold Rush, things began to change. I'm going to read a passage by cocktail historian David Wondrich on this subject, because he said it better than I can. He always says it better than I can, and... He actually put in the time to do some primary source research here. This passage is from his book Imbibe, and it starts out fairly nonchalant and historical, but it escalates quickly in terms of what all this means for the cocktail. So perk up a bit as you listen to this. Quote, The gold rush may not have changed every aspect of American life, but it sure galvanized the sporting fraternity. As Bayard Taylor observed when he toured the diggings in 1849 in the easy-come, easy-go atmosphere of California, weather-beaten tars, wiry, delving Irishmen, and stalwart foresters from the wilds of Missouri became a race of Sybarites and Epicureans, he said. This was manifested most characteristically in their sudden and surprising fondness for champagne and all kinds of cordials and choice liquors. One of the places this expressed itself was in the cocktail, a luxury that... At a bitter to a pop, even a busted flush gambler or empty pan prospector could afford. That taste for the finest extended to ice. John Borthwick, a Scot who spent much of the early 1850s in California, later recalled of the mining town of Sonora that, quote, snow was packed in on mules 30 or 40 miles from the Sierra Nevada, and no one took even a cocktail without its being iced. In any case, by the end of the decade, an iced cocktail was no longer an item of wonder, not just in California, but in the rest of the country as well. The advent of ice brought in a few other changes. Since granulated sugar didn't dissolve well in cold liquor, mixologists learned to replace it with syrup. And why stop with plain sugar syrup? Why not throw in a little raspberry or almond syrup if you've got it, or even a few dashes of some fancy imported cordial? And once you've pre-dissolved the sugar, you won't need that toddy stick to break up the lumps anymore. You can stir the drink with a simple teaspoon or, more theatrically, pour it back and forth between two glasses or a glass and one of those new tin shakers. End quote. So, 
all these burly, bearded miners could work backbreaking, dangerous jobs all day, but they couldn't bear the thought of a cocktail made without ice. Is it me? Or is it starting to smell a bit like hipster in here? Give these guys a smartphone, some rich parents, and a 90s childhood, and I think they'd get along just fine with a large portion of today's cocktail crowd. And here, I would say I digress, except for the fact that affluence and access to ingredients are probably the two most important factors in the rise of the cocktail. In fact, the forces at play during those early days when proto-cocktails morphed into the final cast of characters and techniques that we know and love today are very similar to the ones that spurred the rebirth of the cocktail in the late 1990s and 2000s. Affluence and diversity. Both good things both necessary for the cocktail to develop, but as we know from the stark divide between the drinking culture of rich and poor, it's a necessity that keeps some folks out in the cold. At this point, I consider jumping into kind of a theoretical tangent on how we can use this lesson to make cocktails more accessible today, but I know how much you guys hate when I do that. So instead, I'll mention a few tidbits about the people who are kept most in the cold during the entire history of the frontier. People who have a stereotypically dark relationship with alcohol to this day. Native Americans. Now, it's tempting to say that the First Nations people didn't have any contact with alcohol until they came into contact with European settlers. However, that's definitely not the case. Pre-Columbian tribes in present-day Mexico cultivated and fermented agave plants to create an alcoholic beverage called pulque, and the Apache are known for making a corn beer called tiswin. It's also likely that many Native Americans also used the fruit of the prickly pear cactus to create some sort of wine-like beverage. And in this same kind of world, we can't forget the use of mind-altering substances like peyote and other psychotropic plants and mushrooms that stretches well into the distant past for these Native American nations. So, to say that Native Americans were completely sober would definitely be a fallacy. But, it's clear that as these people were struck with atrocity after atrocity and penned into reservations, alcohol certainly offered a dangerous escape from their situation that has plagued their communities right up to the present day and resulted in the harmful stereotype of the drunk Indian. You got a gun for Or with a mind? I think what all of this goes to show is that the frontier was a hard place to live. And people back then of all types wanted to escape a bit and refresh themselves however they could. If they couldn't literally shake off the dust of the trail, well, then maybe they could at least take it off their mind for a while by locating a bottle of old Monongahela, a glass of fusel oil, or maybe even a bartender who could mix you up a gin sling. As access to ice, refrigeration and the railroad accelerated, access to fancy drinks expanded, and a wonderful era of cross-pollination between cities developed in which the nation's best bartenders like the famous Jerry Thomas began setting down their recipes so that people all over the world could learn how to make these fine concoctions. This was the golden age of the cocktail, 
and it is the subject of another episode. But if you're the type of person who's enamored with the glitz and glam of luxurious city bars and perfectly crafted cocktails, my biggest ask of you right now would be to always remember that these would never have been invented unless a bunch of smelly, stubborn miners packed their mules with snow and refused to drink their libations unchilled. That about does it for our episode on Frontier Cocktails. As I ride off into the sunset here, I hope you'll be inspired to do some of your own research on our nation's mixological roots and maybe even pick up a bottle of our Frontier Sarsaparilla Bitters to help with your experiments. Cheers. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and audio remastering by Samantha Reed. Wasabi Insights by Jennifer Bloser of Oregon Coast Wasabi and a little bit of storytelling magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.